Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we're going to focus on the state of the labor market, where we are in the recovery, remaining challenges, and the potential impact of Washington policies. To break down all of this, we are joined by AAF's Douglas Holtzegan and Isabel Soto. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. All right, let's jump right into things because we got a lot to discuss today, and I know you guys have a lot to say on this topic. So let's start with where we are today. Friday, we're going to get the November jobs report. Um, it'll be released Friday morning. What do you think it'll tell us, and what, what should we be focusing on, both positive and negative? Well, let me take a shot at that. I think um, when I look at the jobs report, I, I look at two numbers, and they're not the total jobs created in the unemployment rate, which are the ones we usually focus on. Uh, right now, I take a look at the growth in aggregate payroll. So that's the combination of employees on payroll, hours they work each week, and average hourly earnings. And, and that's essentially a measure of broad labor demand. I'm, I'm trying to get bodies, trying to work them longer, and I'm going to have to pay more probably to do that. That number has been extraordinarily high recently. We've seen double-digit growth in aggregate payroll, so lots of demand for labor out there. The second number I'm going to look at is labor force participation, uh, which is going to measure the flow into the, the labor force uh, of individuals in the U.S., and, and that number has been stagnant. It hasn't moved essentially at all over the past year or so, 15 months, and, and that's the, the labor market we're in. We're in one where there's extraordinarily high demand for labor, the, we're very much supply constrained. Uh, that's driving up wages. We've, we've seen that headline many times. It's also allowing people the luxury of quitting a job because there are other ones out there employers are trying to hire. So in terms of the labor market dynamics of this recovery, we will get back to the you know level of employment we had in February 2020. We're still about just a little under 4 million uh, bodies short of that. We'll get back there as soon as the labor supply shows up to fill that up. And in particular, Female labor force participation is down about two and a half percentage points, about 2.5 million workers um, are not there that were in February 2020. That's the missing piece of the labor market right now. And that's that's a, a either a cyclical thing, you know, you've got to come out of this, this COVID pandemic, or there's been some structural change and people have changed the way they want to think about being at home and out of the labor force versus being at work. And in which case, this is what we have in the way of labor supply, and we're going to have to figure out how to operate the economy with that tighter labor market uh, going forward. It's an interesting period. Yeah. So as we think about, you know, these challenges to getting people back to work, why are people not coming back to work? Do we have any information on that? Well, I think we have some we have a. Uh, this is like Casablanca. You, you round up the usual suspects. Right. So, you know, number one, it's the virus in the end. We, You know, all of this stems from the onsets of the pandemic. Um, there are still people who are afraid of uh, infection and are staying home and out of the labor force as a result. Um, the arrival of a new variant heightens those fears, I think. And so we'll, we'll try to track that out. Uh, then there are broader responsibilities for caretaking, either kids or, or other uh, adults. And that was a, a big story when the schools were closed. 99% of schools have reopened at this point. Um, child cares are reopening. Um, Hard to tell how much that is, but you know that, that's been part of the story. Uh, then there's essentially pay. Um, we were concerned for a while that pay on unemployment was higher than pay uh, on the job. Uh, we've taken away the federal bonus that should be in the rearview mirror, but there are issues now in just 
what part of the economy do I want to be in and what's the pay there? And it's, it, it's going to be more expensive to get people into the service sector, for example, which has been ravaged by the pandemic and where it's riskier to work now. So those that pay is going to have to go up. And so there's no single explanation that, that jumps out in the data. There's a lot of speculation about which piece it really is. I don't think we know right now. Um, and I, th- I guess the thing that I, I think Isabel knows the most about is, you know, are we creating new structural um, problems in the labor market that are going to make it harder to recover and thus uh, exacerbate the problems we have in this pandemic? I think also just noting that we might have workers that just never come back. I think that's important to note. You know, we're gonna we're gonna have a number of workers that, due to a combination of some of the things that Doug has mentioned, fears of COVID, um, some financial insecurity, that will just decide to retire and leave the labor force altogether. And that might be some of the gaps we're seeing as well. You know, the the two big uh, parts of the labor market that are being hit are caretakers and then people that are close to retirement. And combining both of those, we have a very serious problem where we might see a persistent and continuous labor shortage because these workers that we were expecting to come back are just not going to be there. Interesting. Well, let's drill down into some of the policies that might that are being thrown around. You know, now President Biden, you know, has been aggressively pushing what he calls a pro-work agenda since he took office. Probably started talking about this on the campaign trail as well. Um, the biggest piece, of course, of right now is the Build Back Better Act. Near term, long term, is this a jobs bill? Well, it's uh, it's certainly being presented that way. Uh, is that this is going to create millions of jobs? Uh, the claim, I think, is ten million or sorry, ten ten billion. I think, ten, sorry, ten million jobs in green energy. So this is a very um, ambitious goal for the Biden administration. But the big question is. What do these jobs look like? What kind of jobs are they? And, and who's going to fill them, right? Assuming that we can even create these through Build Back Better. And the reality is it's it's not really about jobs per se. It's uh, jobs for a particular group of the labor market. And those are unionized workers. And ultimately, it's about giving more power and control to unions to be able to enter those jobs and occupy them instead of uh, creating jobs for the labor market as a whole. It sounds like a key component of the administration's pro-work agenda, if we looked at it all together, is a dramatic expansion of unions um, in the United States. Um, The White House created a task force on worker organizing and empowerment to, quote, encourage and incentivize unionization and collective bargaining, uh, unquote. So we have the House Pass Pro Act, which is making its way through the BBA, which you just talked about, which notably ties, you know, federal program dollars to requirements that work in performed union workers. So could you, probably a question for Isabel, could you walk us through the union-related policies making their way through Congress? And more broadly, what is the administration's aim in expanding unionization in the United States? That's for some reason a really hard word to get through. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) You'll get used to it. Um, Yeah, absolutely. So I think the big thing being talked about right now is BBBA. And there are a number of different provisions in there, not solely just focused in, we'll say, when you look at ed and labor, but throughout the whole bill, that in a lot of ways are union giveaways, uh, particularly if you look at the uh, climate and energy components of the bill. There are about $55 billion focused solely on that. And a good chunk of that money is going toward tax rebates to incentivize 
their consumers or producers to help you know push the economy toward alternative energy options. Take electric vehicles, for example. Uh, there's a tax credit, about $4,500, for consumers to encourage them to buy these electric vehicles. Now, on face value, that, that sounds great. You know, more electric vehicles, this is good, alternative energy. The fine print is that those vehicles have to be produced um, in the U.S. by a union shop. Then when you break down the numbers even further, all of a sudden you start to notice that out of all of the uh, auto plants that make EVs or make hybrid vehicles, 75% of them are in right-to-work states which typically have very you know, low percentages of, of union representation or union membership. And now this very quickly becomes a lot more about increasing unionization and much less about uh, addressing the climate crisis. That's just one example in uh, PVVA. You mentioned uh, the PRO Act, Kyle, which would just mark an absolute uh, overhaul of established labor law and overwhelmingly hand over power to unions uh, one of the greatest examples is the attempt to reclassify a number of independent workers and independent contractors into full employees so that they then can have uh, the rights granted to them under the NLRA uh, that would allow them to unionize and organize. And all of a sudden you have this big and growing segment of the labor force that is not really able to be touched by unionization that would become available for basically union capture. Kyle, the thing I'd note about this is it is alluring when, when they make these claims about so 10 million jobs in, in, in green energy, but it's always useful to ask yourself, how does this all add up? Because if we only have so many workers and we aren't seeing a big response in labor supply, and as, as Isabel said, maybe, maybe some of these folks go away forever, those have to come from somewhere. So somebody's not going to have workers, right? You're going to have these public policies pushing the workers into green energy or EVs and electric vehicles and the production of them, there are other small businesses in, in, in the United States who are not going to be able to get workers now. Uh, unions typically charge higher wages. So the workers go to work for a place that has higher wages, they can't compete with that. So, you know, if you called it create green energy jobs, it sounds great. If you call it kill small business jobs, it doesn't seem so good. But those are the same policy. So another aspect to this and something we're starting to hear a little bit about, Isabel, you just published some research on this, is the White House has voiced its interest in exploring a different system of worker organizing known as sectoral bargaining. You've done some research on this, as I mentioned. Um, what is sectoral bargaining? Because I know a lot of us have no idea. I've never even heard of this before. Um, I certainly hadn't until you wrote your paper. And how does it differ from the existing U.S. systems? Yeah, so the current system of collecting bargaining that we have in the U.S. is something called enterprise bargaining, where you bargain directly with your you know, immediate firm or the immediate business, and that's who interacts with, signs contracts with um, union leaders or the, the workers themselves. So it's a firm-by-firm firm bargaining system. Sectoral bargaining uh, is a little bit different in that it is industry-wide, and so it can be... It can be uh, either industry-wide where an entire industry organizes and then they all of a sudden set all the contracts and all the wages for the entire sector. It can also be by occupation. In some cases, um, it's even been done by geographic region. But this is not a system that we have in place right now in the U.S. It hasn't truly been 
tried all that much in the U.S. There was a brief period in the post-war era, but nothing is as widespread as it seems like the Biden administration is willing to explore. Um, there are examples of sectoral bargaining in other parts of the world. Uh, Europe and Canada have systems um, that have varying degrees of success, uh, but it does seem like this is an effort that the Biden administration is is at least going to uh, begin to explore. Yeah, I, I mean, I was just shocked to hear that this was on the table. I mean, this this was always an idea that you know those quirky Europeans did, and and it's not something that we we had in a sort of a modern capitalist system of, of the U.S. type. The closest in my lifetime, so you know, I'm the old one on this uh, podcast, uh, was the the notion of pattern bargaining with the auto workers in, in the in the post war, and that would be you know maybe Ford would go first, and the terms of the Ford contract would set uh, the floor for whatever happened to GM, whatever happened to Chrysler. And so the the United Auto Workers, who were going to be negotiating individually with each of the, these um, these uh, firms, uh, would use the the pattern to, to build successfully richer contracts as they went through. And that was a, a key part of, a, of what was practically a, uh, an auto sector approach uh, that the union adopted. Interesting. So Isabel, did, did have any states tried to implement this? Um, some some have, correct. Um, what what what's the experience been? There has been some movement on the state level um, with sectoral bargaining or, or similar systems, but it's been very very specific, and nothing is actually passed. So yeah, to be clear, nothing is in effect right now. But New York, Massachusetts, and Connecticut have either. Uh, discussed it or even uh, been attempting to put together legislation that would create a sectoral bargaining system. And like I said, it's it's not um, what you typically think. So it's not auto workers, you know, it's not manufacturing. It's a, uh, a, a very specific segment of the labor force. It's actually independent workers in the gig economy. More specifically, it is app-based drivers uh, and app-based delivery. So what you typically think of with gig economy, like Uber, Lyft, Postmates, any sort of restaurant delivery or rideshare service. So it sounds like a lot of these are being targeted at independent workforces. That this is this 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 agenda is being targeted at the independent workforce. Why why is there such a focus on this? So part of it is the fact that this is such a a dynamic and and in some ways very new. Uh, type of worker that is uh, occupies almost a gray area. They are not full employees. They don't receive the full benefits that employees do. But because of that, they're able to own their work in a very unique way. So they have the flexibility to set their own schedules. In a lot of uh, cases, uh, set their own rate of pay as well. But the concern here is that unions will try to have them reclassified as employees. And this is being done on a number of different levels. Uh, sectoral bargaining is an attempt to like, tiptoe up to that. So with the state uh, you know, proposals that I mentioned earlier, there was actually a deal made that if they were allowed to unionize, that they would not be reclassified. But all of a sudden, walking up to the unionization line and maybe giving some level of benefits, it gets very, very dicey legally. And then being able to argue that those people are not, in fact, employees becomes harder and harder uh, for the uh, the companies themselves. 
So with the independent work sector, it's an attempt, in some ways what Doug said, to capture another group of workers that has typically not been part of this unionization framework. When you hear this, you know, being talked about in the media, you know, a lot of people say that this is going to, that all of these efforts will help these kind of workers. But will it? I mean, will this help or harm independent workers? So that's that's the question. If you ask the Biden administration, unionization is the way to help workers. What is pro-union and is pro-worker? That's just not the case. Um, what is pro-union is pro-union. And unfortunately, that can often come at the expense of the worker. And independent, the independent workforce is a great example. Um, if you just you know, look at the news, ask independent workers themselves, do you prefer to be you know, doing what you're doing and have your flexibility, or would you like access to these benefits and be a full employee? You know, the overwhelming number of those people are choosing to be independent workers and want to be independent workers. And in fact, it's over 60% of workers who left the traditional employment system and went into independent work see higher wages. So it, it becomes, I will say, confusing to all of a sudden tell these workers, well, you might see drops in pay, um, you might lose access to the things you want and the flexibility that allows you to do your work the way you want, but you'll be unionized. So all of a sudden, the question is, what is what is the value add? Why do these people have to be unionized when they don't want to be and forced into a system of work that doesn't benefit them? It, it really is a strange situation, Kyle, because you know, the, the whole notion of the union uh, representation is the workers decide that they want to get together and have someone negotiate in their behalf because they, they need for their work to be different. This what we have is not acceptable. Either it isn't paid well enough or they view the, the hours or conditions as undesirable, whatever it might be, they are trying to improve what they have. This is a, a situation where they have what they want. They left traditional employment to get this. And now legislatively, people are trying to put them back in the place they just got out of. And so it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't make it sounds like it doesn't make a lot of sense for workers. But what about the economy at large? I mean, you know, this all of this, all these efforts are are, you know, build back better, building the economy back better is what what we hear from the administration. How could large scale unionization via sectoral bargaining or similar efforts affect the economy? Um, businesses, workers, consumers and even inflation, since that's the, the big the big uh, concern these days. I think a, a big, large-scale unionization does a couple of things. I mean, number one, you will get a one-time shift in the power uh, in labor bargaining that will lead to higher overall compensation, and that will show up in consumer prices. There's no way uh, to avoid that. And so that might not be sustained, but you'll get a one-time push. That will show up as higher prices. People will notice. Uh, second thing that will happen is um, you will lose a lot of flexibility in the labor market. Unions are designed to have people in the union, their members, their members for this particular firm or in this occupation, however they've done this. And it, it, it changes workers from being something that can be deployed flexibly across the economy to meet new needs as, uh, as uh, the situation demands. And we've just been through an enormous example of the situation changing and demanding different things, right? So, you know, suddenly everybody's driving and delivering uh, packages and, and not doing their traditional service job. So that flexibility is really important in, in a, a market economy. It allows you to be responsive to what consumers want, not 
responsive to what the labor leaders want. So we lose a lot of flexibility. Uh, in the end, um, you typically would have a, a higher steady state level of um, unemployment relative to the labor force and, and um, you know, really have a, a much more rigid system. That's that's bad news when you get shocks, when, you know, that's what economists always call things, shocks. Like, you know, financial markets fall apart, that's a shock. We get the Great Recession. COVID uh, shows up, that's a shock. We get a, an enormous recession. But we have the ability to respond fairly flexibly right now. It'd be a lot worse if, if we were less uh, flexible. Look at other countries. Like, we have a much more flexible labor market than any other major developed country. We have recovered more quickly, more successfully than anyone from the, the COVID-19 shock. I think there's a, a lesson there. Where, where does this all end up? I mean, what's the appetite, what's the political appetite for this um, and other big union policies? So it does seem like uh, on the campaign trail and even now the Biden administration has said that they are interested in exploring sectoral bargaining. Um, and it doesn't seem to just be, you know, a, something that was said on the campaign. They, a lot of legislators have come out to support things like the PRO Act to push more workers into unionization. Senators Sanders and Warren have also come out in support of a sectoral bargaining system. So it's it's not an insignificant amount, um, but it's going to be very hard to have uh, any sort of legislation that a large majority of Congress can get on board with that involves anything close to sectoral bargaining. Doug, I don't, I don't know if you have a, a different take on this. Yeah, I, I think that's about right. It, this isn't a feasible near-term legislative agenda item. Uh, they're trying to lay down a marker that this is something that should be on the, the, the list of things that future Congresses pick up. Um, they're certainly trying to be as aggressive as they can in the moment. And like all things in the very progressive agenda, time is of the essence because they want to jam it through before they lose uh, power in the, in the next set of elections. So, um, you know, they're going to push hard. Um, where it ends up? Well, that depends a lot on uh, November of 2022. Interesting. Well, moving back out to the to the bigger labor picture for a second, what are the biggest challenges in both the near and long term, in the longer term in the labor picture right now? Well, for me, you know, um, uh, this is literally uh, a Paul Krugman line, uh, but, but it's true. Um, in the long run, uh, productivity isn't everything, but it's nearly everything. And so getting better productivity growth means uh, more in the way of uh, output per worker, which allows you to pay them more uh, for every hour that they work, which raises the standard of living. And and when you look at the components of productivity, uh, they they depend heavily on education and skills. And so you, that gets you straight into the challenges we have with our education system from kindergarten or even pre-K up through college. Um, it gets you right into what is the nature of the the products that they, they are, are making and the tools they're using. And that's all about the innovation agenda. And we worry a lot about maintaining that, that entrepreneurial spirit and the innovative uh, characteristics of the US economy. And it depends just flatly on having firms building facilities here. And so that's the international competitiveness aspect. And so, you know, when I look at the labor market, I, I see the, the sort of uh, tip of the iceberg. And underneath it is all the policy issues that we, we're, we're worried about right now. And so with all that in mind, um, what should Washington's policy focus be? If you guys could, you know, tell them what to focus on, what they should be dealing with right now, what should that what should that be? I think the number one thing is the education agenda. You've heard me say this before, Kyle, in other podcasts. 
we regularly measure the failure of the U.S. K-12 um, education system, but we haven't done anything about it. Dec for a decade, every year, we see a quarter to a third of fourth and eighth graders seriously deficient in reading and math. Those are the future workers of America. They're the future productive uh, citizens of America, and we're failing them. And so to me, that's got to be the number one agenda item. I would just note for the record, nobody is talking about that. That's nowhere in the Build Back Better Act. That is nowhere on the legislative horizon. And I, I view that as a great disappointment. Absolutely. I think it's education and labor are, are extremely, extremely connected. And the fact that that doesn't seem to be, you know, pressing or a priority of this administration is extremely concerning. I mean, we're already seeing gaps in skills, very, like specifically hard skills. If you look at things like cybersecurity. Now, if we go back to that, you know, 10 million clean energy jobs numbers, it seems like in something like energy, you need hard skills. You need people that are actually capable in doing these jobs. It's not just about bodies. It's about, you know, capability and hard skills. So it sounds great. Let's create jobs. But we also need to have the people able to fill them and able to do those jobs. And unfortunately, uh, even some of the specific labor policy provisions that the Biden administration is pursuing and is putting federal dollars toward do not have a proven track record of success to actually get workers ready to do the jobs that are going to be rapidly growing and will be the job to the future. Well, hopefully we can see more and more of a focus on, on that on education policy and labor policy and how it works together. Um, thank you both for tracking, you know, all of the different labor things going on right now. I'm sure we'll have a lot more conversations about this in future podcasts. So thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.